Good morning. Uh, when they told me that Abby was going to introduce me, I kind of worried because she had an opportunity to share whatever she wanted to share, and she played it safe, just so you know. Um, just uh, by way of continuing a little bit of that introduction, uh, I'm a radio guy, as you know, uh, many of you know. Uh, radio people were a little different, so I want to just kind of explain those differences. Uh, the first thing is, radio people are too ugly to be on television. Now, uh, God has given me this face. It's the burden that he helps me carry day to day. I cover most of it with fur, so I'm good to go. Uh, so that's the first thing you know. The second thing you need to know is that radio people, we spend a lot of time sitting in small padded rooms talking to ourselves. Uh, the third thing is radio people, unlike you know, uh, pastors of churches, you know that pastor is, is reading through scripture and commentaries and all kinds of different things and just asking God to help them prepare a sermon for Sunday. That sermon's going to last anywhere from 25 minutes to two hours, depending on the mood of the pastor. And uh, that sermon will typically have three points to it that they're wanting to communicate to the congregation. Well, radio people are different. We get to the point, it takes about 60 seconds. It's all the time I have. Thanks for coming out this morning. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, yeah, Abby mentioned that I'm a content creator. Uh, more than anything... Uh, I'm a storyteller. I love telling stories. And that's really what we do on the radio. We're just telling little stories in between songs, um, stories of hope, uh, stories of, of even tragedy, but how uh, you can overcome that. And so this morning, I'm going to intersperse stories through all that I'm sharing. Uh, thank you for the invitation to be here. Uh, I, I really do appreciate it. It's an honor for me to be able to share what God has been speaking to me um, recently, and uh, so I want to start with the story. If I could put a slide up, today it's all about the, the attitude of Jesus, and so the first story I want to tell you is a story about a guy named Roger, and I'm going to put a picture up here on the screen, and you'll, you'll, that's a very old picture because this is a very old story, so you're thinking, well, that's just a terrible family picture. Well, when cameras were around at that time, that's the best they could do, apparently, uh, but Roger um, met his wife, Mary. They were studying at uh, a place called the Hutchinson Bible Institute in Hutchinson, Kansas. I don't think it exists anymore, but uh, they were studying for ministry. And um, Now, I've lived in Kansas for a year. That's about all I could take. Um, if you're from Kansas, I, I apologize. But they celebrate the Flint Hills. If you've driven from Kansas City to Wichita, you see the sign for it. And I'm thinking, I live in the Midwest where it's sort of flat and we have lots of fields, but how do you, those aren't hills, uh, but Hutchinson is in the middle of all those hills. And so Roger would walk those hills around the, the Bible Institute, uh, and that's where he would really uh, spend time with God. And uh, God just put this image in his head of this river and a village. And he kept seeing this river and this village, and he didn't know what exactly that meant. And so uh, God tends to do that when he's calling us. Many times he, he puts pieces out there. He doesn't like make the whole picture clear, if you've been experienced that at all. Uh, you know, and, and that was for me. But this is the thing. He's preparing us all along the way. Uh, you know, when I was in elementary school, they said, we're going to teach you the metric system 
because the metric system is going to replace the U.S. measuring system. And so we all learn the metric system, even though we're still using miles per hour today. I'm not sure exactly. And during that time, I'm thinking, why am I learning the metric system? Well, then I got into high school, and they said, there are these, uh, you know, if you're going to go to college, you have to learn a foreign language. That'll help you get into college. And in my little high school, in that little farming community I grew up in, they, they would teach us either Spanish or French. Now, French, eh. I didn't want to learn French, so I took Spanish. And, and I'm thinking as I'm learning this, why in the world am I learning Spanish? Well, then I got to college, and in college they said, there are these new things called computers. And the future is going to be about computers. Maybe you should take a class in computers. And so I took a class in, do you remember this, Word Perfect? Yeah, yeah you love Word Perfect, yeah. Well... I'm taking this class, and again, I'm, I'm asking myself, why am I studying this? I'm never going to use computers. You see, God knows that uh, he, he sees the 30,000-foot view of what's ahead of us and what he has planned for our lives. And so he's preparing us along the way, even though we don't realize it many times. Um, so Abby said I, I speak Spanish, which I do. I, I spent uh, many years in South America as a media missionary, uh, working specifically um, in Spanish and Portuguese languages, but also in a lot of indigenous languages with uh, media centers where we would produce radio and television and different things. Uh, and so, as you can imagine, I lived in uh, Ecuador and I lived in Argentina. And guess what? They use the metric system and they speak Spanish. And uh, my entire life is on a computer because of all that we do. Uh, so, again, God knows. And so God is preparing. And I think uh, Roger, again, he's getting a piece of what God has for him, this river and this village. And so he was just constantly walking those hills of Kansas, asking God for more clarity. Now, he met his wife, Mary, at this Bible Institute, and they got married, and they started to have children. And so he had this call. He knew this call was to this village and this river, and he did more research, and he did more research, and he was convinced that this river and this village uh, was in the country of Peru. So he had a place now that he knew that God was telling him to go. Well, um, he would go to his church, and he would say, God is calling Mary and I to Peru. That's where he's calling us to. Now, one of the deacons of the church said, Now, when it comes to our mission efforts, we might go as far as Guatemala, but we will never go to Peru. That's just too far. Now, their church today is about 167 countries that they have missionaries in, um, so they went way beyond that. But, um, you know, Roger and his wife knew that's where God called them to be. So they, they began to uh, you know, finish their studies. They were working odd jobs. They moved to the, uh, to the edge of Mexico near Texas so they could start working on Spanish in preparation and working every job that they could. And uh, then uh, uh, as, as time went on and they were saving money, if they didn't have a church sponsoring them, they were going to do it themselves um, but Roger wrote in his autobiography, the urge to reach others became almost an agony. Another church leader told Roger, 
We cannot send you to Peru, but if God has called you, you will go. So finally, they had enough money. They decided, okay, that's it. They, they went to California, there to the coast. They paid passage in a boat, and they went on their way to Peru. Uh, November the 1st, 1914, thus the reason why that photo looks really bad, right? Uh, Roger and Mary arrived in Pacasmayo, Peru. It's right there on the coast. Uh, I've been right there where they landed on that beach, uh, and I was there in the off-season of fishing, which means the boats are in the sand, and they're mending their nets. Well, today you'll see the names of boats, because boats have to have a name, right? And so they had names on the boats like... uh, you know, Jesus is Lord in Spanish. And so the influence was immediate when they arrived there to that country. But it took time. Um, in fact, they worked there um, planting churches and reaching people for three years. And then their church finally said, okay, we'll go as far south as Peru. And they started to support them, which was great. Uh, and so that, that's part of the story. I'll continue that in just a minute. You know, um, when I was a teenager, I'm a teenager of the 80s. Do we have any 80s teenagers here today? Yeah. So uh, we're the reason there's a hole in the ozone. Um, <laughs> lots of hairspray. Uh, but, uh, and there's lots of neon and lots of colors, if you remember that. Yeah. So the 80s, um, my, my mom always used to tell us boys, you know, when we were teenagers, because we're all close in age, that we were sporting a tood. You know what that means, sporting attitude? It was talking about our teenage attitude. And so attitude is what I uh, want to talk about this morning, but I want to talk about the attitude of Jesus. Okay? Um, so I want us to look at a very familiar story uh, from Scripture today in John chapter 4. You've probably heard this story, you know, literally hundreds of times, but it's uh, the, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. So we'll put it up on the screen for you. Uh, starting in verse 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sichar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon that day. When a, Samaritan, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had already gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, You would have given him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, said the woman, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank for him himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give them, I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, this is a familiar story. Now, some of the parts of the story you might have heard, you know, this is uh, the Samaritan woman. It's the middle of the day, which wasn't common. 
for the well to have someone there in the middle of the day. When you go to get water, you do it in the cooler part of the day, early in the morning or late in the day. But noon has got to be the hottest part of the day, and so why would you go to the well during the hottest part of the day? Well, the Samaritan woman, of course, she had a reputation. She'd had several husbands. The guy that she was with was not her husband, and Jesus knew that. So she would go at noon when she expected the well to be empty so she wouldn't get all the stares from people and the, you know, the whispers from people. Um, the interesting part of this scripture and the part that really jumped out at me is, uh, if we can go to that next slide. There we go. Verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. When I read that, and I probably read this story you know, a hundred times, that verse jumped out at me. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? It said he had to go through Samaria. Why? And so that kept bothering me. And so I started to dig into this, and I found out, you know, because it talks about how Jews and Samaritans, they don't interact. Well, whenever Jesus and his disciples were traveling, they would avoid going through Samaria. In fact, that was the normal route. Let me show you a map of what that looks like. So you can see there Judea to the south and then Galilee to the north. The dotted line goes around Samaria. That's literally crossing the Jordan River and then having to cross the other river again. They would go out of their way to avoid going to Samaria. But in this scripture, Jesus said, I had to. Again, I ask the question, why? I think Jesus knew exactly what was going to be there waiting for him. He had to have that encounter with the Samaritan woman. He knew precisely at noon, the hottest part of the day where you don't get water, she would be there. And the attitude of Jesus is really, uh, you know, have to, I have to. It's the attitude. You have two options here. You have to do it or you don't have to do it. And Jesus' attitude was, I have to do this. And it was really the attitude of Roger and Mary as well. They were told no over and over again, but that didn't matter. God had called them specifically to this place. And so their attitude was just like the attitudes of Jesus in the fact that they had to go. This is not normal. Um, so a little more of Roger and Mary's story. They get to Peru. They have to earn money themselves because they're funding themselves. And so they opened up an English school. I've actually been in the building of one of their English schools on the other side of the Andes Mountains near the jungle. Because they didn't just stop at the coast. They kept going. Because there was a river somewhere and a village somewhere that God had called them to. And so they worked along the way, getting to that spot. And uh, it, life was not easy for them. And when they went, they had two children with them. Uh, one of their children passed away. Mary was expecting their fourth child at that time. And um, when that child was born, that child passed away. Mary was sick, and she passed away. So here's Roger, now a widower, two small children. But in the back of his mind was still this attitude, I have to. 
So by this time, the church was sending more missionaries to Peru. They sent uh, another, uh, a few missionaries, but one of those missionaries was a single woman named Esther. And Esther, one of her jobs, was also taking care of Roger's children when he would have to travel. And so, of course, Roger and Esther fell in love and they got married, which was great. But then Esther got sick. You have to remember in the, you know, in the teens around the world, there weren't vaccines for malaria. You can take malaria pills or yellow fever shots, nothing like that. Uh, and medical was not what it was today in these countries. And so Esther also passes away. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've lost two children, two wives, I would really begin to question, God, is this, are you sure this is what you want me to do? But Roger had that I have to attitude. Through it all, he kept that same attitude, I have to. Now let's switch to a different story. We're going to go to Paul. Everyone knows Paul from the New Testament. Uh, you know, Paul was Saul before he changed his name. He had that radical encounter on Damascus Road with Jesus. And with that, the influence of that call that God had placed upon his life. This was a guy, I mean, if you ever want to see a story or tell someone a story that someone says, yeah, I'm too far gone, God can't change me, point him to Saul. Saul was murdering Christians. He was out to get them. And then he had this dramatic experience with Jesus, changes his name to Paul, gets called at that point to radically change, switch his life from killing to saving because he had to. You see, God had called Paul to do this. When God calls you, freedom happens. And that's the thing. Even though you're going through stuff like losing children or losing a spouse, two spouses, uh, there is freedom in the call on your life. So I want to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 19. And it's uh, this little section of Scripture, if you have it broken down into sections, it's called Paul's use of his freedom. Now, we're, now he was in prison multiple times, yes. Even in prison, he was free, and he knew that. And the prison he was in many times was just a hole in the ground. Trust me, there was no bed in there. It was not comfortable in there. He did not get fed properly in there. But through that situation, he was writing letters to these churches that he had started. And that's what we have most in the New Testament today. So 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I don't know about you, but this sounds like I have to attitude, doesn't it? 
Now, that scripture is kind of complicated, you know. What it basically means is Paul's going to do anything he can to tell someone about Jesus. That's the I have to attitude. When we have that call and when we have that attitude, there is freedom. And God is preparing us along the way. Now, I'm sure there's probably experiences in Saul's life that God was using to prepare him to become Paul, really the first missionary of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's doing the same for us today. So I want to introduce you to a couple. If I can put that picture up on the screen. This is Viviana and Marcelo. So uh, Viviana and Marcelo, when I was in South America as a missionary, they were on my team. And uh, currently they do mornings on our Spanish radio station, Bria. Um, we also do a Spanish radio station. We have three radio signals, um, one over in Illinois and two over by South Bend uh, and, in Spanish populations. But um, when I moved to South America, I, I had to do language school. Even though I'd studied Spanish and was fairly good, I had to be very good uh, at it. And so I lived in Ecuador, and that's where I met Viviana. Uh, Viviana uh, lived in the town of Rio Bamba, which was about three hours south of the capital city of Quito, where I lived. And uh, she had experience in radio and had gone to Bible school to learn uh, as well. She didn't finish her degree. Um, she uh, went back home, was continuing to work in radio, and so after I finished language school, moved to Argentina where we built the communication center for Spanish, um, I called her and I said, hey, would you consider coming to Argentina and being a part of the team? Because she had experience in radio. Now, this is like a 19-year-old girl who had met me one time. Just like maybe 15 minutes of talking. And she said, yes. Which shocked me, because when you're moving from Ecuador up here in South America to Argentina down here in South America, it's like moving from Boston to San Francisco. Same kind of deal. Uh, and so she left her family behind. She moved to Argentina. She enrolled in our Bible school down there where she finished her degree, but she worked in radio. Well, Marcelo, he's also a student at the Bible school, and uh, he's actually the student body president. And so these two meet, and um, they fall in love, which is great. I perform their wedding, which is awesome. Uh, their oldest son, Jesse, is my godson, which is even better. Uh, and uh, now they are just serving the Lord. But the stories that they came from are kind of surprising as well. And I won't go deep into their story, but Viviana grew up in a very Catholic family. Catholic is a big cultural thing in Latin America, and so a lot of Catholics there are Catholic because of culture and don't really participate beyond, oh yeah, I go to Mass on Christmas because Grandma expects it. Um, but Viviana's aunt um, became a Christian and, and then became a pastor's wife. And so she's a pastor's wife in a, in a church and, and invited Viviana to come. And her, even though her parents were reluctant and didn't want her to do it, they finally let her go. Um, that brought the whole family into the church, which was great. Uh, Marcelo is another story. Marcelo is a preacher's kid and uh, grew up in the northern part of Argentina near the border of Paraguay 
super hot up there. We're going to experience that in May. It's going to be a blast, I promise you. We're going to sweat like crazy. But Marcelo, um, when his dad moved to Buenos Aires to pastor there, Marcelo was a, a 13-year-old, and um, the big city trapped him. And he had all kinds of problems with drugs, um, literally in sleeping in ditches, puking up blood, uh, and, and probably should have died a couple times. But God had different plans for him. Um, he came back to God. God called him to serve him in ministry. These two are crazy. If you're on a plane with them and you're going somewhere, by the end of the flight, whoever they were sitting next to knows Jesus. We've done like conferences at like hotel rooms, and you got the, the staff that's waiting on the conference attendees, and Viviana's typically back in the kitchen telling the kitchen staff about Jesus because they have that same attitude. I have to. So they now live in Ecuador. They're church planners. Uh, they planted a church about six years ago that is just busting at the seams, but they've since, they have that church, but then they have three other additional churches that they've planted and trained pastors to pastor those churches because it's this attitude of, I have to. God's preparing them along the way. I have to do this. Uh, we have, um, as a part of the strategy of what we do, um, children that grow up in countries around the world, uh, you've heard like Compassion International on different things, and, and they have these child development centers. And so it's an after-school program that the kids come and, and they help them with their homework, and there's usually some kind of food and recreation, but then they also tell them about Jesus, right, which is a cool thing. Well, when those teenagers uh, graduate out of the program, we lose a lot of them. And so one of the most recent strategies we've been, we've been using, even with these guys, um, youth around the world today, when they have technology available to them, they embrace it. The, the global generation of youth today, because 97% of our world's population lives within data service. So they all have cell phones. And when you have a cell phone uh, and you're a teenager, that allows you to express yourself via whatever platform, like social media, YouTube, whatever. And they love doing that. That's global. You know, so they want to express themselves. Also, that technology connects them to community. And that's really what they desire more than anything, is to be connected to their friends. And so those devices let them do that. So what we do, because there's already this real major interest in media, is we created uh, media discipleship centers. So if you can go to that next picture, it's just a building I wanted to show you, but um, we've built an additional story on top of this building, and we have the media center up there. I took a group of uh, university students there in 2019 before COVID where we did a media camp, uh, kind of like what we'll be doing in May. And um, so what happens is these teenagers, guess what? They're interested in media, and we have a place where they can now come and be taught how to do it professionally. And uh, they're really excited about that because they already have a passion for it. But the whole purpose is, now we're going to disciple them in Jesus. That's why it's a media discipleship center. We're not discipling media, we're discipling Jesus. Um, so that was our first one in Ecuador. We have one in Guatemala. Um, we'll be doing a small center, taking in equipment when we go to Paraguay in May. 
Uh, I have another one in the works that's going to be in Zambia and Africa, um, another one in Cote d'Ivoire in Africa, and another one in Kenya. Um, we have a sister university in Kenya from Olivet, and we'll be uh, putting in media center there and helping them build a radio station over there too. So, um, But the reason I show you all this, it's the attitude. This is my attitude. I have to do this. Even though I work at Shine and I work at Olivet, I still have this as a part of me because I have to. Uh, now, now think about the attitude of Jesus and I have to, and, and I'll wind up with this. When Jesus was uh, in the garden and he was questioning and he said, now... God, if there's another way, I'm totally open to there being another way for you to save the world. That was his human side, because he was fully human and fully God. And uh, so he said, if there's another way, but if there's not, it's okay. I mean, he got real serious about this. It says he was sweating drops of blood, right? Um, but his attitude all along was, yeah, I have to do this. Through his entire ministry... He knew he had his purpose here on earth as a son of God was to save the world. I have to do this. But something happened in the garden, and it was a shift in Jesus' mentality. And I think when we get to the point where we realize that what we're doing, and we're doing it for God, it shifts our mentality too. From I have to do this to I get to do this. You see, there's a difference there. The attitude is, I have to do this, which Jesus had that attitude, but then it shifts to, I get to do this. When God calls us, there is freedom. When God calls us, he prepares us. And there's a burning in our heart that tells us, I have to do this. I have to accept this call on my life. But then we get to that point when we realize, it's almost like an aha moment, I get to do See, God's called you. You get to do this. There's a tremendous privilege that he's put into your hands. At the same time, there's also a tremendous responsibility. But with that responsibility, again, there's that freedom. From I have to to I get to. That's the attitude of Jesus for us today. Let's pray real quick. Father, we're grateful that we can be in your house today, and we're grateful that uh, you did send your son, Jesus, as a part of a plan to save the world. We're thankful for your grace and your mercy and the peace in our lives. We're thankful for the freedom. We're thankful that you're preparing us, even though we don't even realize it. But Father, most importantly, we're just uh, we're thankful that we can serve you in the ways that we do. So help us remember as we leave this building today, that we get to serve you. Through anything that we do, through our occupations, we get to serve you. You call us to do that. And that is a privilege. And that is a responsibility. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.